Hello, everyone. This is Generation Jihad, the podcast that covers the global war on terror and so much more. I'm Bill Raggio. I'm a senior fellow at Foundation for Defense of Democracies and editor of FDD's Long War Journal. Today, we have John Hardy. He's the deputy director of FDD's Russia program, and we are going to discuss the latest developments in Ukraine. John, welcome to Generation Jihad. Uh, it's great to talk to you again. Thanks, Bill. Great to be back. Yeah, so we've had a it's it's been a bit since we've uh, we've had a conversation. Uh, we've had a lot go on. This battlefield seems kind of static. So today, what we're going to do, we're going to do a quick uh, recap, a, a battlefield update, update recap. What's happening? Where is it happening? What isn't happening? And then there was a recent ch change of command that uh, I recommend you go over to Long War Journal and read John Hardy's article on that. Uh, it's quite interesting. We'll have a, a conversation about that as well. So uh, first, let's uh, tell us what's happened um, in the last, oh, I guess it's been over a month since we talked. Uh, how Has there been a lot of developments uh, uh, on the battlefield? Sure. So as you mentioned, it's a bit static in terms of territory changing hands. That's not to say that the fighting hasn't been intense. Um, it still is quite intense in certain sectors of the front, which we'll talk about shortly. Um, but really, I think overall big picture, we are in a bit of a transition phase. Um, I think since Russia withdrew across the Dnieper River and Kherson Oblast, Russia's been um, trying to stabilize the defensive lines. I think in general, it's been able to do that um, due to you know, various factors, um, weather, you know, whether it be mud or lack of foliage for cover, the Russian commander, erstwhile Russian commander, um, uh, really did a good job of having uh, Russian forces across the, the battlefield build strong fortified defensive lines, something he did well in Kherson Oblast and he applied um, elsewhere as well. And then I think a, a big factor has been a greater Russian force density. So ratio of forces to territory that they're trying to defend. That's due to a, a variety of things, whether it be a contracted front line, um, mobilization, um, the, and the redeployment of forces from the Hirson direction um, uh, eastward, all using the Dnieper River as a natural barrier um, in the west. So in Ukraine's done the same thing, by the way. Um, but some of Ukraine's really best units uh, I think have needed some time to to rest and refit after months of really grinding fighting in in, in Kherson. Let's talk about the fighting in the Bakhmut area. Um, there, Russians have uh, made some gains along this uh, particular front. This is a key terrain for Russia and uh, Donetsk. Uh, I think they are really looking to. You know, Putin has made this a priority, clear, very clear. Would you agree with that, John? That's where he's looking to uh, focus uh, to get a victory there. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I think you know, just the stated goals at this point are to take the rest of the Donbass, and so obviously, um, you know, excluding the the sliver of Luhansk Oblast that's now been lost to Ukraine, um, they're taking the rest of Donetsk is really the the chief task. Whether Putin would actually be satisfied with stopping there is you know anyone's guess, but that's the stated goal. Yeah. So, what, what have we seen in the in the uh, Bakhmut front? Uh, what what has gone on over the last, oh, I'd say probably month or so? Uh, the, have have the Russians made gains there? Right. So, if you look back, you know, actually, the past few months, it's been really grinding fighting, um, led primarily by the Wagner, uh, so-called private uh, military group. It's of course, um, basically an extension of, of the Russian Defense Ministry. Um, funded primarily by Evgeny Prigozhin, a, a businessman close to the Kremlin, 
Um, they've been the lead in, in that area. Um, and so basically the Russians are, are trying to um, encircle Bakhmut from the, the north and south. And they've had some, some tactical successes over the past few months, um, most recently last week in Solidar, a, a city, um, a resort and mining city uh, to the north. I think they've probably taken all of that or or very close to and are actually pushing a little bit more uh, to the west and, and southward. And then below Bakhmut uh, uh, to the south, the Russians have, have made a little bit of gains as well. But again, this is coming at, it's very grinding finding. And, and the, the rate of gains is fairly slow when you think about the amount of time they've, and, and resources that they've put into this. So, um, you know, whether this will turn, it's clearly a tactical victory for, for Russia, especially over the last week. Um, Prigozhin and, and Wagner and the Russian military in general have, have really played it up as such, and surprisingly. Um, but you know, whether they'll be able to turn this this tactical success into operational uh, victory, I think to me, I, I'm very skeptical um, for a number of reasons that we can go into. Yeah, John, I, I'm actually in agreement with you. This is definitely a tactical victory. This is something Putin wanted to achieve, the Russian military. You know, if they had done this four months ago, they may have been able to, and if they had actually mobilized and used their forces properly, they may have been able to capitalize on this front and been able to drive forward. But the Ukrainians, you know, they've uh, they've proven to be resilient and uh, tenacious, and they've clearly had time to, for even if they do lose Bakhmut, right? I saw a Ukrainian commander yesterday uh, say that it did appear that Solodar has been lost. Uh, that's, uh, after about a week of denials from Ukrainian officials. But again, it's the battlefield static. I'm not going to imply that someone wasn't being truthful. It seems that the last uh, neighborhood or district in that in the right. in right. Solidar probably the Ukrainians withdrew from that. Uh, but exactly. the, you, I mean, they're clearly making the Russians pay a price, but the Ukrainians are paying a price here. But to summarize that, I, I agree with you. I don't think there's a lot that the Russians can exploit from this victory in Solidar. It will make holding on to Bakhmut a little more difficult for the Ukrainians. And it does make it, it does, the Ukrainians, uh, it's costly for them to, to mount this defense. But I think this is baked in. This is calculated what the Ukrainians are doing. They're grinding down the Russian machine. Yeah. You know, I think for Ukraine, there is an interesting, I think, debate here. Um, we've seen it break down to the press some um, about whether it's worth it to be throwing in uh, reinforcements into the into Solidar and into the back uh, area in general. Um, it's sort of a parallel to, to a similar debate that Ukrainians had uh, around listed chance in Severodonetsk uh, over the summer when, you know, it's just very intense fighting, high casualties on both sides. And I think there's some debate as to whether Ukraine would be better off reserving those forces Keep keeping them fresh um, for what we all expect is going to be an attempt at another major counteroffensive later this year. But um, to, to your point, you know, at the same time, the Ukrainians are taking heavy losses, so are the Russians. And it, it could be that the strategic loss for Russia is greater in terms of manpower and, and perhaps more importantly, materiel. Um, there, there have been indications that, that Russia's um, artillery rate of fire has dropped, including in that area. Um, so I think it's clear that they seem to be conserving ammunition, whether that's because, um, you know, they just want to save it up or you know, whether they really have to, to begin conserving now that is an open question. I think some debate within the Russian military watcher community, but it is clear that 
whatever stores they do have, I think they, they probably will begin to run into problems, availability problems sometime this year. So uh, for Russia, I think you do have to wonder about the strategic wisdom of, of this you know, offensive. It, it does seem like there's um, an element of perhaps personal, personal promotion on the part of Prigozhin, and then you know, for, for Putin, um, p- perhaps a political imperative to um, continue to show gains. As we've discussed, I don't really see a great prospect for Russia turning, even if they were to take Bakhmut, turning that into operational victory. You know, Ukraine can fall back to a secondary defensive line at Chasidyar. Um, and then Russia, because they've lost their presence uh, at, at Izum, really doesn't have a great prospect of, of pushing northward from Bakhmut to try to take Slovansk and Karmatorsk, the, the two big remaining cities in Donetsk Oblast. So I think for, for Russia, you have to wonder, is this you know, something that Surovikin and and now uh, the other generals in charge really think is a great idea, or is it something they're they're being forced to do by their political master? Yeah, I really wish you could be a fly on the wall and and to hear those discussions. No doubt, right? No is doubt. is is this being dictated from on high? Is this a political strategy or is this a military strategy? Because it doesn't seem like a good military strategy to me at this uh, point. But you know, there are you mentioned, John. You know, what are the Russian capabilities what is its uh, stockpiles of material to, in order to are they going to have problems this has been the real big question all of this is a black hole for us and it's we, we we're trying to figure that out we're guessing i said this early in the in the war uh, I, i'll go back to this no matter what the outcome of this war do you you know do we have a stalemate do the ukrainians take back all their territory or do the you know do the russians slowly grind away one thing that's very, very clear to me is that the Russians are not a conventional military threat to NATO, particularly to Western Europe, perhaps in Latvia, Lithuania, in the, you know, in that area where they're, they're directly bordering. But the Russians have proven that militarily, you know, if they can't, they couldn't roll through the Ukrainians. I, uh, I have little confidence that they're a direct conventional military threat to NATO. I think that has been demonstrated uh, during this fighting. But you know, I'm not sure what your opinion of that is, John. But uh, and, and, but let you, you could comment on that. And then let's let after that let's uh, let's take a look at the Kermina area. You had mentioned that earlier, and Ukraine uh, seems to be making some small gains in this area. And I, th- I actually think this is an area where the Ukrainians may be uh, the the focus of their next offensive. But uh, I'm curious in your opinion. Yeah. So on the, on the first topic, you know, it really deserves a podcast in and of itself. But um, just quickly, I'd say. Yeah, I mean, this is not the same military that Russia went into the war with. And I think we can debate about whether that Russian military was a conventional uh, threat. I think, you know, in many ways, Russia did not put its best foot forward. And so I wouldn't take the way this war this war has gone and the outcome to be um, determinative or necessarily uh, perfectly reflective of, of the pre-February 24 2022 Russian military. I concur with that, John. Yeah, I'm talking. I, I, my, I was mentioning and today. Yeah. And so go, going forward, it will certainly take the Russian military uh, a lot of time to rebuild. And, and some things I think will be lost. So, and I'm not the first to, to note this, but the, the Soviet inheritance of, you know, a massive amount of, of artillery stockpiles and, you know, a bunch of old tanks that, you know, while old can be put into service, a lot of that, you know, is it going to be rebuilt just because the, the Russian defense industrial base is not the Soviet one? So in that sense, you know, some things are never, never coming back. 
in terms of the newer stuff, I, I think actually we'd be surprised about how quickly Russia is able to regenerate that stuff. I, I think um, for all the talk about export controls, um, the Russians do a pretty good job of evading them. And their defense industrial base right now does seem to be cranking along. Um, so yeah, I think they, they will be able to, to restore some of that fairly quickly. I think their, their biggest problem will be the, the people, really. How do they recruit and retain contract personnel? That, you know, Russia has a terrible command culture problem that needs to be addressed. I don't think it will be. So, yeah, I, I think they'll, they'll remain a conventional threat to, to Eastern Europe, um, you know, perhaps after a period of rebuilding. Um, they, they never, in my opinion, were never much of a conventional threat to Western Europe just because their logistics are so tied to rail. And the, the Soviet um, Soviet made rail system ends with the former Soviet Union. And it's actually a different gauge when you go into the Western outside of that. So, yeah, I don't think they're able, ever able to really project power, conventional military power, uh, much further than that. It's all about logistics. All right, let's let's go. Let's move forward. Let's uh, tell us talk to us about the Germina area. What is uh, what what's happening there? Real, just real briefly, you know, uh, how how are the Ukrainians uh, progressing in this front? Sure. So so essentially, what Russia's tried to do is so after the debacle in Kharkiv Oblast, and then after uh, losing the the town of Liman, the Russia's tried to uh, consolidate a defensive line stretching from Kremina. Uh, up to up, up to Svetovia and then up to the uh, Russian-Ukrainian border, um, and Russia's done a fairly good job of holding that line. But Ukrainians have chipped away um, some, especially at the southern end of that line around Kermina, uh, which is just northwest of Severodonetsk and the Sichansk, the cities I mentioned earlier, uh, the ones that Russia worked so hard to take uh, back during the summer. So I think in terms of uh, immediate prospects for further Ukrainian gains, this is where um, we have to look. Uh, whether this is, is the sector that Ukraine is going to prioritize for its you know, next big counteroffensive remains to be seen, but it's certainly a good candidate. Quick question um, before we take, we'll step off and take a look at the at the bigger picture. Um, what do you think about the Ukrainians' prospects of uh, advancing uh, further uh, east in in the Kherson region across the Dnipro River? Do you think that that's a uh, you think the Russians have established their defensive line effectively? Um, when I take a look at this, the two likely areas, but do you think there's a, a what's the other possible areas where the Ukrainians may launch their counter, their next counteroffensive? Yeah, so if if they pick the south for the counteroffensive, I don't think they'll try to go over the Dnieper River. I think it'd be in Zaporizhia Oblast, yeah. um, pushing pushing that way. It'd be a pretty tough ass to cross uh, the Dnieper River, a very risky operation. Uh, Russia really had uh, too easy of a time doing it early on in the war, and I don't think Ukrainians would, would have that easy of a time. And, and yes, Russia has established um, several uh, defensive lines in uh, in the the left bank or eastern bank of of Kherson uh, Oblast. Okay, great. Okay, let's take a look at the big picture now. Um, what have both sides been doing in this? And again, I'm I'm just I don't want to downplay. There's been heavy fighting, but in this relative lull, in this sort of this static environment that has developed over the last several months, what what are we looking at here from both the Ukrainian and the Russian sides of the of this war? Sure. So as I mentioned at the top, it's a bit of a transitional phase. I think both sides have tried to use this period to generate and regenerate forces um, in anticipation of major moves sometime this year. So for Ukraine, you know, there's talk of a major counteroffensive. I think the Russians 
especially Putin, um, does want to try to get back on the offensive, regain the strategic initiative, and uh, relaunch major uh, uh, offensive operations. Um, if not, you know, in, in the winter, perhaps later this year. So for Ukraine, um, basically they're trying to take Western military aid and they're trying to encourage the continuation of the flow of Western military aid and use that to uh, equip additional units and accumulate materiel for a counteroffensive. Um, the U.S. And, and their allies are trying to facilitate that by adapting their aid packages. You've probably seen the announcement of, of Bradley's um, and then the training sort of being tweaked as well with the U.S. launching uh, a program for a program for combined arms training uh, in Germany. Oh, before we get to Russia, John, uh, real quick on that. So do we have an indication of how many Bradley fighting vehicles the Ukrainians are going to get? Uh, I haven't seen anything on that. Uh, I believe the announcement was 50. And of course, those aren't the only vehicles that you know, uh, were announced in that package and earlier ones. But um, it's clearly a, a step up from what Ukraine has gotten previously. Does this introduce a, a logistical problem for the Ukrainians for for maintenance and uh, and such uh, with introducing, a, like I said, a new weapon system? The Ukrainians really have had a hodgepodge. I don't think this is really. I had actually thought earlier on in the war that this would become a, a major headache for the Ukrainians, but they seem to be able to manage this. Um, it's hard to determine how well they've managed it, but managed it well enough that they launched two major offensives. Uh, do you, Do you think that's a, a, a a problem that the Ukrainians are going to encounter? Or do you think that the Western support will will overcome these, again, this hodgepodge of material that the Ukrainians are getting from the West? Yeah, so it's certainly a challenge. Um, I think the Ukrainians will tell you that as well. But of course, you know, they'd rather have that headache than have the other problem, which is you know, not getting any Western aid. So Right, yeah, um, exactly. <laughs> yeah, and again, I really, I do think they've they've done well. Again, they've had tactical and strategic success on the on the battlefield so let's move on to russia let's uh what what has russia been doing during during this time sure so for russia it's a bit of a similar story obviously they had the uh, the mobilization announced back in, back in september so we saw with the mobilization um uh, some troops being uh, thrown straight in uh to the front lines to try to to try to stabilize the lines and plug holes um, other troops are kind of filling out staffing tables and existing units. And a big chunk of the mobilized forces, you know, according to Putin, 150,000, you know, the exact number is unknown to me, but I think a big chunk um, are remain in Russia and are, are basically being formed to a combat reserve. So they're getting more training, better training, at least in theory. Um, and, and, and Russia is forming new units, new regiments. Um, that is, at least to my mind, Putin likely hopes to use to, to relaunch major offensive operations. Uh, now, at the same time, of course, Russia, uh, kind of like Ukraine, is looking abroad for, for materiel. So uh, the Lurian munitions, the Shahed 131s and 136s that we've heard so much about from Iran. And of course, there's been reports of a potential uh, deal for short-range ballistic missiles. And then from North Korea, artillery ammunition. Um, it seems like Russia has gotten some uh, of that ammunition from North Korea, although uh, at least based on reports from the IC, um, not a heck of a lot. This sort of circles to back to the Ukrainians. Uh, we had the last time we talked, we were ta discussing the Russian of uh, air offensive, or you know, they basically they've been launching missile and uh, uh, drone strikes against Ukrainian infrastructure, particularly power infrastructure, water things of that nature. Are we seeing any indications that the Ukrainians are depleting their 
air defense artillery? Has this become a problem for the Ukrainians? I, this is a really difficult one to gauge because I think at some point what this will do is it's going to force the Ukrainians to either, you know, defend their battlefield units or defend their infrastructure, assuming that there is a problem with stockpiles of Ukrainian air defense artillery. Any indication of that? Right. So, so for I think a few months now, at least, um, Ukraine has had a problem with dwindling stockpile of missile interceptors for uh, the Buk M1 medium range system. This is their workhorse mobile medium range uh, surface to air missile system. That is a big issue because if if they run out of those, it really blow a big hole in Ukraine's air defense coverage, and it could allow um, more freedom of action to Russia's air force, which so far has really been a, a non. Uh, not not a non-factor, but it has really underperformed in this war. So um, the prospect of them kind of getting back in the game is not a good one for Ukraine. So Ukraine has been able to supplement with uh, a lot of other, uh, some other Western-provided surface-to-air missile systems. And like you said, anti-aircraft artillery, Ukraine has gotten uh, some German systems. Now, Germany never had a lot of ammunition for those. I think ammo is probably a problem there. Unfortunately, the Swiss are, are holding up deliveries of additional ammo. So, yeah, I think that that is a problem for Ukraine. At the same time, um, Russia's supply of these Iranian-provided loitering munitions is not infinite. And we have seen periods where the, the strikes have really uh, fallen off because uh, Russia exhausted its supply and had to wait on another batch. So I think it's, it's really up to how quickly Iran can del- deliver them based on press reports and uh, declassified intelligence. It sounds like Russia is trying to localize production, um, but it's unclear when that will actually come online or you know, how many Shahed it will be able to produce before the war ends. Let's uh, move on to that Russia command shakeup. Uh, it's going to be a little bit of criminology here with some names of some generals and you know who's friends with who and whatnot. Go ahead and walk us through this, John. Give us the give us the top level view of what's happening here, and how do you think this will impact the battlefield in the months to come? Sure. So I think I should actually back up to the beginning. Um, so when when Russia began its so called special military operation in Ukraine back in February of last year, it appeared to lack an overall commander of of all its forces in Ukraine. Just highly irregular. Um, Stunning. Usually, yeah, yeah, really. I mean, usually unity of command is is kind of the military one on one. Yeah. Um, right. <laughs> so, so the fact that they didn't, you know, and there probably was some coordination in, in their in the cell they set up in the general staff or whatever. But you know, bottom line, they didn't have an overall command there, and it really showed. Basically, four different groupings of forces in Ukraine, um, commanded by the heads of their respective military districts. Um, competition for strategic resources like you know, air support and missiles or what, what have you. Um, so, you know, eventually, um, uh, Putin did appoint an overall, at least based on U.S. intelligence, did appoint an overall commander, uh, Dvornikov, who was the commander of the, the southern uh, grouping of forces, southern military district. He was quickly fired. Um, it was rumored that, that someone took his place, but it, it doesn't seem like he lasted long, if he ever was actually appointed. Um, and then finally, we had uh, Sergei Surovikin. Uh, the head of, of the Russian aerospace forces, who had also taken over command of, of the southern grouping of forces. Um, and I think he was really the first true commander in, in that, you know, he got the reins. He was formally announced uh, for the, he was the first one to be formally announced. And I think Putin, it seems like Putin listened to him a bit more 
um, you know, Surbikin was evidently able to, con to convince Putin to allow him to withdraw forces um, across the Dnieper River and Kherson Oblast. So it, it just from, based on Putin's statements, it seems like he was getting a clearer picture of the, the reality on the ground from Surbikin. So and, and it seems like Surbikin had uh, Putin's confidence in December uh, 2022. Putin gave him an, him an award uh, right on New Year's Eve, seemingly you know, uh, indicating that uh, he had Putin's confidence. But then on January 11th, um, the, the Russian Ministry of Defense announced a shakeup whereby the, the chief of the general staff, Valery Gerasimov, is taking over as the overall commander. Surovikin will be his deputy alongside two other generals. Really a, a strange move, surprisingly. I think it caught the, the Russian military press and military uh, blogger community uh, off guard as well. Because um, it, it really didn't make a whole lot of military sense. Surovikin seemed to be doing a good job. He had brought a more competent command to the Russian forces, which is something they were you know, sorely lacking. He had stabilized the lines, pulled off a really difficult retrograde operation in Kherson without heavy casualties, something many Westerners didn't think what he'd be able to do. Anyways, Putin you know, makes this change. And it's obvious that you know, despite the, the MOD statement saying that the defense minister, Sergei Shoigu, appointed uh, Gerasimov, it's obviously Putin had to make the call. To my mind, it, it, the only thing that really makes sense is, you know, some sort of internal power political play by Shoigu and Gerasimov, who really had been sidelined, seemingly sidelined for a while. Putin was giving orders directly to commanders, Sergeykin and others. Um, and so I think Shoigu and Gerasimov, who, you know, are obviously responsible for the debacle back during the first phase of the war alongside the FSB, they seem to be sort of uh, in the doghouse, so to speak. But, you know, nevertheless, here they come with this move. They essentially reassert themselves back at the center of this war and perhaps more importantly for Shoigu uh, within Putin's court. To me, you know, I think, and this is pure speculation, but when Shoigu is you know, making the argument to Putin why this should, should happen, I, it, it seems likely to me that you know, he's saying by making this change, you'll allow us to uh, have a better shot at resuming offensive operations this year. And I think that the MOD statement uh, sort of speaks to that. It, it talks about, it justifies the move as saying, you know, Russia basically needs a more senior figure to handle an expanded range of tasks and improve cooperation between branches in Russia's military. So to me, that that speaks to the argument that, that Shulig is likely making to Putin saying, hey, you want more territory? put me back in charge. Um, of course, <laughs> I don't think that that was a wise choice. I think Shoigu and Grasimov improved their incompetence, improved their, they're not willing to give Putin bad news, which in the Russian system is, is really a recipe for disaster, as we saw uh, during the first phase. Yeah, this really is kind of stunning. The Russians over the last several months have certainly stabilized and, you know, going back to the, to the losers, you know, the guys who, the generals who, brought you this debacle. I, I'm really a little bit surprised that uh, that Putin is willing to go along with this. But, you know, again, we're not flies on the wall and, you know, he seeing and hearing these conversations. Really wish we can do that. All right, John, give us the bottom line here. What do we think is going to be happening in the next uh, several months? Do we think the Russian mobilization is going to give the Russians more uh, firepower, greater ability to go on the offensive? Go ahead and give us your, your quick take on this. Sure. So as I've said previously, I do think Russia will try to relaunch major offensive operations. The Ukrainians are obviously warning about that from their commander in chief and others. 
to my mind, I, I'm skeptical that, that Russia can regain much offensive potential. Uh, you know, I want to be careful about my own biases in that sense. So we, I think we do have to keep an open mind. Uh, I'll be watching closely about the, the um, progress in, in mobilization. We may see further waves of mobilization. Um, so we do have to keep an open mind. But to, yeah, to my mind, I just don't think Russia will be able to regain offensive potential that quickly. Um, and nothing like the, what they would need to uh, to take the rest of the Donbass and certainly not to launch another uh, offensive on Kyiv uh, as the Ukrainians are warning. That, that strikes me as, as unrealistic. Oh, let, let's touch on that really quick before we wrap this up. I've, sure. been, I've been seeing that and I, that strikes me as quite odd. It does seem the Russians are putting some forces or there's some indications that Russians may be massing in Belarus. But is this just a... Ukrainian information operation in order to attempt to get more weapons. I mean, that's the only read I really have, unless they're actually, these reports are accurate, but I'm not seeing any indication that this is legitimate. What, what do you, what's your take on that? Sure. So there had been Russian forces flowing in, into Belarus. I think what they're doing there, and by the way, there's also been some uh, unusual uh, Belarusian exercise activity really for, for many months now. Um, so it, it does, you know, Belarus is doing things they would do if they were going to war. That said, I, I you know, to my mind, uh, another offensive uh, from the northern direction from Belarus strikes me as uh, unlikely. Um, and I think basically what Russia is doing here is moving mobilized forces into Belarus to train them there because they lack um, training capacity. Back in Russia, um, you see a, a lot of instances where like volunteers, uh, you know, veteran volunteers are training mobilized Russian forces back in Russia because they lack, because the people who would train them are, you know, in Ukraine fighting. Um, so, and, and you know, if you look at Russia's uh, uh, semi-annual conscription cycles, uh, mobilization was about double what they usually take in. So even on uh, uh, full capacity, they might struggle to, to train and equip all those troops. So that's why they're, they're going to Belarus to try to do that. So you're seeing mobilized troops flow in along with some regular Russian units that are basically trying to restaff with mobilized forces. And then you see them flowing back out into the Donbass along with a lot of uh, Belarusian equipment that's being taken out of storage and sort of press ganged into the Russian military. Yeah. And that has the added advantage of giving the uh, Ukrainians the perception that there may be an offensive, which could Precisely. cause them to focus some forces there. Yeah. I, 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 I could not agree with your take on that. Uh, I think that's what's happening. Perhaps we'll be surprised, but I, on this one, look, the Russians really, in my opinion, if th their best bet over the next six months to a year is try and hold what they have and chip away, um, that, that to me seems the best that they can do, unless they do a massive mobilization. But even then, they're not going to be able to, to mobilize and train and equip these forces quick enough to make them... Uh, be a, to have a significant effect on the battlefield and the defensive yeah absolutely but on the i'm sorry on the defensive absolutely but on the offensive no i don't think that's possible but uh, john thanks as always uh for joining us on generation jihad uh it's great to have you all right thank you bill yeah john you have a great one uh, happy uh, happy new year to all of our listeners here at generation jihad uh, thank you for uh listening to today's episode uh, just a reminder, you could find us on YouTube, Apple, Spotify, and anywhere else you listen to podcasts. Make sure you subscribe and leave us a review. Thanks again, and we'll see you again soon.